Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Today is our 50th episode, so I wanted to bring back our guest from the very first episode and talk about his Philadelphia 76ers. So I'm here today with Jordan Christmas. And Jordan, how are you? I'm doing great. Unfortunately, for unfortunately uh, for the other fans, we did not get to see the NBA uh, All-Star Draft, which should have been televised. But other than that, I'm doing well. But LeBron and Steph said they should have it televised next year. So hopefully that happens. Maybe Chris Paul can get over himself and let them televise it. <laughs> Hopefully, they need to. He needs to sneak through the back the back tunnel t- into the meeting for that one. Yeah, I'm just gonna pretend that it's Chris Paul's fault because that's kind of funnier than any other alternative I can think of. <laughs> Fair enough. Maybe he can send uh, Tarek Black as a distraction while someone sneaks into the draft room and just writes everything down. And Gerald Green, who has been with the team for 20 days, would be so down with the plan. Joe Green's down with every plan, though. That's kind of just his deal. <laughs> yeah. He had a Houston Rockets logo in his hair when they signed him, and he had the Celtic shamrock in his hair when they signed him, too. He just kind of goes with the flow, you know? <laughs> Loyalty. Let's talk about one of the brand new members of the Philadelphia 76ers and start off by reviewing their offseason. And the first thing I wanted to bring up was the J.J. Redick signing. And I thought that this was one of the smarter moves any team made during the offseason, which is pretty high praise given the number of trades that looked like steals when they were made during the offseason. But I thought everything about the Reddick deal made sense for Philadelphia. And while he hasn't been as good as he was at his peak for the Clippers this year in Philadelphia, he's been a really solid addition for them on what I think was a really smart contract. Yeah, and Brian Colangelo has kind of gone with this idea of let's get one-year contracts and not screw up the cap space for the 2018 summer. The 2018 summer and the 2019 summer are realistically the last chances the Sixers will have at getting a big free agent before Embiid's contract extension, Simmons' contract, eventual contract extension, and Markel Fultz's contract extension start clogging up the cap. So try trying to think, I guess, forward and going with the safe signings like J.J. Redick and Amir Johnson was a smart choice. And J.J. Redick was is a shooter that the Sixers have not had in a really long time. I mean, Kyle Korver wasn't the historic shooter that he that he has turned himself into when he was first uh, drafted by the 76ers. Jody Meeks was a really good shooter, but J.J. Redick for the last four years has shot, or the last three years with the Clippers, has shot 44.5% from three. And it was on probably... Um, like little attempt, little attempts for him. I th- he did it on six attempts per game with the Sixers. Uh, his right now, his attempts are now at is more close to seven per game, and he's shooting forty percent. He was kind of slow to start the year, but lately he's he was on fire before uh, he got injured versus Toronto. But more than anything, more importantly, it's not just Reddick's shooting; it's the gravity that he attracts, and that's something the Sixers have really haven't had in a long time. Brett Brown likes to run uh, dribble handoffs with J.J. Redick and Embiid. Um, Redick's kind of weirdly handling the ball more now, maybe more than he should in my opinion, but regardless, he's using Redick in a lot more sets and different actions. And so with shooters like Redick and Covington, it's, <laughs> it's really, especially this year with the lack of wing 
wing and guard depth that the Sixers have is very important for their offense. And Redick has been a huge addition. And hopefully they get him on a um, a multi year contract that is a lot cheaper. That's probably looks like what it, it look. That's probably what they're aiming towards based on Colangelo's comments. Um, with this one year twenty three million dollar deal, hopefully he'll sign a multi-year deal this summer on a cheaper price. I thought that JJ Redick was the perfect fifth starter for this team. I sort of thought about the Sixers more in terms of the defensive side positionally because Ben Simmons has been the point guard and Brett Brown has had him at point guard since day one. But coming into the season, I sort of thought of the Sixers starting lineup as Ben Simmons guarding the four, Joel Embiid guarding the five, J.J. Redick at the two, Robert Covington at the three. And that leads us right into our next point, which is I thought that Markel Fultz would be the starting point guard, at least on the defensive end, more of an off-guard role on the offensive end. Instead, Fultz has played four games, and his shoulder injury has been maybe the weirdest story that has been in the NBA in the last five years. I can't think of any other injury story. It only happens to the Sixers. Well, I mean, the other injuries, though, Joel Embiid's injury, it made sense that he was going to miss the whole year. Ben Simmons' injury made sense he was going to miss the whole year. Fultz played for four games, and then they took him out, said, oh, it'll be out a couple weeks. And a couple weeks came by, and they said, oh, they'll add another couple weeks couple weeks keep coming and coming and coming and Fultz still isn't playing and the videos that are coming out of practice are really scary honestly and part of me wants to say Fultz is 19 and he showed enough of a varied skill set in college that I think he'll still be a quality six man at worst but I was expecting so much more from him than what we've seen this year and what we've seen this year is really troubling. This is probably already this, uh, this first like few minutes is already going to be like the saddest part of the podcast. I was, I was more talking about just stuff always happens to Sixers rookies. And for once it seemed like the team was going to get a high lottery pick that was going to play immediately or, you know, be relatively healthy um going into the season and Markel Fultz look I was doing a draft you know profile when the Sixers had the number three pick in the 2017 draft I was doing a a draft profile for hashtag basketball.com and I was listing out all the prospects that I was going to watch examine and write up on and then when news broke that the Sixers and Celtics were about to trade and swap positions and the Sixers were going to get the number one pick I immediately dropped everything and I was just going to do Markel Fultz uh, Markel Fultz write-up because I thought in my opinion he was the best prospect. I thought he was his own t- in his own tier. And may- and not only was he the best player, he was also the best fit for the Sixers because of his ability to shoot off the dribble, score at all three levels. He is a special player running the pick and roll. He's one of the he's one of the best guards that I've seen in college run the pick and roll. He has an incredible feel for it. But and also his variety of finishes around the rim, 6'4", 6'10", wingspan can can defend the one and two. He seemed like the perfect fit next to Ben Simmons who can't shoot and Joel Embiid who is a monster when he sets screens. And it was it was all going to be, you know, gravy and the 
uh, the core was going to build together. Training camp rolls around. He has a free throw form. Video surfaces that he has a free throw form that looks like Shaq shooting blindfolded. And then he apparently, and you could, in summer league, he changed his shot. You could, it was like a little bit lower of a release, but it was still a relatively good looking shot. I mean, he was hitting shots off the dribble over Dante Exum. He was taking Donovan Mitchell to school, Jason Tate. Like he, in the few games he played in summer league before he hurt his ankle, that shot looked good. And then he, cha- it seemed like he changed it in August. And then the video surface in training camp, Brett, Brett, it is a weird thing. It's like, did the shoulder affect his shot or did, the or did he change his shot go out and change his shot on his own and they're using the shoulder injury as a cover-up i do believe that he changed his shot because he was in the process of that already and then the shoulder injury happened and now it just looks weird like like there's videos every day from sixers practice some days it looks better and some days it doesn't and i just did not think we were going to be at this point i imagine that the team is very frustrated with this and so are fans and rightfully so and i agree with you in some ways i he showed flashes in those four games even though it clearly wasn't the same player he showed flashes where it's like okay his feel for the pick and roll is still there he can finish around the rim but now teams are playing off of him because he can't shoot outside of 12 feet he just refused to shoot and it's one of the most bizarre stories ever and not in a million years Draft experts, uh, people, who, good people like Derek Bodner and Rich Hoffman, who cover the team, who graded Fultz out as the best prospect, even before the Sixers traded up for the number one pick, and we're saying it all year. They're baffled by this. It's just the most baffling story I can ever remember. Moving from the most depressing story of the Sixers season to either the second most depressing or maybe the happiest story of the season, because Julia Okafor is finally free. He is now a member of the Brooklyn Nets, where he's still receiving sporadic minutes at best. And the Sixers got Trevor Booker's expiring contract in return for Jaleel Nikstauskas and the New York Knicks second round pick this year. And that's not really a great haul, Trevor Booker's expiring contract, but Okafor's value was not only non-existent, but negative by the time they finally got around to trading him. But hey, at least now he's finally free. Yeah, this was probably one of Colangelo's first mistakes when he took over. A lot of people were saying, look, you can't go into the 2016-17 season with Okafor, Noel, and Embiid on the roster. You have to trade him now while they at least have some value. Colangelo opted to wait, quote-unquote, for the best deal. And Nerlens Noel was getting mad. Okafor was getting frustrated. And then now he's traded Noel and Okafor and basically have a fake first round pick from the Mavericks to show for it. And we had to get rid of it. They had to get rid of a second round pick to the Nets to get off the Okafor contract. And look, I've seen, you know, on Twitter, on Reddit, you know, people blasting Sixer fans, most Sixer fans who figured Okafor wasn't a good basketball player because he wasn't and blasting him that we that the team didn't develop him properly but the two and a half years he was in Philadelphia he was a terrible basketball player and I don't mean to rag on the kid I mean I was one of the guys who was high on him in the draft but he can't basically he can't rebound he can't protect the rim he's a terrible 
weak side defender. He can't shoot outside of 10 feet. He's a black hole on offense. And not only that, the best thing that he's good at, which is post-ups, he's inefficient. So basically all around, he's a net negative player. And he always seems to be out of shape. Even when he went vegan and came into training camp in the best shape of his life, he gets traded to the Nets and he's still trying to work his way into shape. So what are we talking about here with the free job movement? That's pretty much it on my rift on Okafor. I've spent so much time writing about Okafor that it's just, uh, it, it was best for both parties to move on. I hope he could salvage his career, but he's just an all around, just a bad player. Uh, sorry to be blunt about it, but that's just the case. The thing about Okafor is that the argument heading into that draft was whether Okafor or Towns would go number one. It was vaguely surprising when the Lakers opted to pick D'Angelo Russell at number two instead so all of the arguments of, oh, Sam Hinkie should have known to draft Kristaps Porzingis, clearly he was the one with upside. That just is clearly an argument made with the benefit of hindsight and not one made with an actual look at the draft at the time. Anyway, let's move on from all of that and go into a look at the season so far. And I wanted to start by going through some of the Sixers' best and worst games. And their best game... I think by a pretty significant margin, was their absolute beatdown of the Detroit Pistons on January 5th. And given that the Sixers and the Pistons are kind of fighting for a playoff position in the bottom half of the Eastern Conference playoff picture, this win might be really important come playoff time. But more importantly, it was just an absolute smackdown. I mean... 114 to 78 is the kind of score you expect when, say, the Warriors play the Sacramento Kings. And instead, it was two pretty evenly matched Eastern Conference teams. The Pistons actually had a better record going into this game, but it didn't matter. Yeah, and the Sixers are now 3-0 and over Detroit in the season series. And a few little, few little underlying things here. Um, Stan Van Gundy is probably uh, top five in in the list of enemies of the process process trusters have not liked Stan Van Gundy because of the comments he made calling what the Sixers were doing and Hinky's plan embarrassing. And meanwhile, Stan Van Gundy has lost to the process Sixers more than any other coach since 2013. So that's always good. And just <laughs> the fact it was funny during that game, the Sixers have blown a lot of leads lately. That's kind of been their trend, the blowing a lot of double digit leads. When the Pistons cut the lead to like 24 in the third quarter, I, start, I, <laughs> I started sweating a little bit, but they were able to keep them at bay. And, but you never know with the Sixers. So those are a few little funny tidbits there. Yeah, the. The Pistons were one of the surprise teams this year, and just the underlying beef between Andre Drummond and Joel Embiid kind of, you know, spiced it up a little bit. But yeah, the the Pistons are now kind of in a downward trend while the Sixers are going in the opposite direction. And that was one of the important, I guess, games to be had, especially January is the month of the Sixers. Uh, if you followed la- if you followed last year when they went ten and five. And that was the uh, start of it. It was one of the more complete games. They were making everything from three. Their defense was spectacular. Also looks like the Pistons were dead a little bit, um, playing a heavy part of the schedule at that time, but a good win nonetheless. This was also the game where Andre Drummond famously shushed the crowd when he made a free throw to put the Pistons down 30. Oh, that was hilarious. (laughs) 
<laughs> that was hilarious. I was I, all I could do was just laugh at it. I couldn't even shake my head. I was just I laughed out hysterically when that happened. Credit to Andre Drummond, seriously, for how much he's improved his free throw shooting. It is really impressive that he's managed to make that kind of jump. Yeah. But you don't shush the crowd when you're down 30. It's just not a thing you should do. That's how you make the internet in a bad way. Exactly. But the other game I wanted to talk about in the positives column was probably a game that ultimately hurts the Sixers in the long run, which was their 116-94 to victory over the Milwaukee Bucks. The game was pretty close throughout, but the Sixers outscored the Bucks 32-14 to in the fourth quarter. And the reason that I say that this game might actually hurt the Sixers in the long run is because this was the game that finally led Bucks management to fire Jason Kidd. Ah. And ultimately, you got to take these kind of wins when you can get them, especially since just like with the Pistons, the Bucks are kind of in that same range at the bottom of the Eastern Conference playoff picture. But that fourth quarter was really impressive. Yeah, and the Sixers, I think, built up a... 15 point lead at one point and of course in sixer fashion they let the bucks back in the game with you know their maddening turnovers they had 11 turnovers in the third quarter after turning the ball over three times in the first half such as the way with young teams in the nba but the sixers were able to hold them at bay joel Embiid once again spectacular with 29 points and nine rebounds and his usual just outstanding defense but of course, the Bucks did not have Giannis, who was resting with knee soreness. But yeah, <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that angle that that game might cost us in the long run. But I see your point because now that Jason Kidd is gone, the Bucks <laughs> might just go on a run and might, you know, play to the you know playing style that their personnel should be playing at. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll we'll see. That was the game that started, you know, the process of firing Jason Kidd. All right, moving from the positives into the negatives. And one of the games that you wanted to talk about in the negative column was the Sixers' recent loss to the Memphis Grizzlies. Now, this was a closer game than many of the games that usually go in the worst loss column. But the Sixers also just blew this game to a terrible Grizzlies team. Yeah, and this was before this was uh after you had sent me the notes for this podcast and you had put the Raptors game back in October as one of the worst games, which it was, but you know, the Sixers are usually terrible without Embiid. I've just come to accept that now. So, I could understand why they got blown out by a really good Raptors team, by the way, that's fun to watch. But yeah, this has been a trend for the Sixers, uh, especially against, especially in December recently, they lost to teams like the Lakers. They lost to the your Kings twice, lost to the Bulls, and lost to the Suns. They just turned the ball over a lot, and I know that's a young team, but some of the turnovers are just pretty maddening. Ben Simmons had four just really terrible turnovers, and. The Sixers had a 16-point lead against the Grizzlies, a really terrible Grizzlies team, as you said, and turned the ball over 14 times in the fourth quarter and 24 turnovers total for the game. And the Grizzlies scored 39 points off of those turnovers. And once the Sixers' offense went stagnant, the it was that was pretty much a wrap. And that's going to be something that the Sixers are going to have to fix uh, down the road. They can't they can't keep losing to these bad teams if they want to make the playoffs. And next up was 
their loss to the Phoenix Suns, which was in a similar vein of losing to a pretty bad team. The difference with this one is the Sixers were at home for this game, unlike the Grizzlies game where they were in Memphis. And this was also after a pretty encouraging win over the Pistons a couple nights before. And the thing about this game that stood out was that Devin Booker just got any shot he wanted against the Sixers. He ended up with 46 points and you just can't let anyone go off like that if you're a team that's trying to fight for playoff position, but especially you can't let the best player on a team like Phoenix have that kind of night. And it wasn't just him either. TJ Warren also had a spectacular night. So it wasn't just poor defense on Devin Booker, but really poor defensive effort all the way around against a team that they should be beating on a regular basis. Yeah, and TJ Warren, really quickly going through this game, TJ Warren was the main guy in the first half that was um, extending the lead from the Sixers uh, in the first half. Devin Booker actually started off one for 10, I believe, and then just basically started a firehouse in the second half. He hit some of the most ridiculous shots I've ever seen, and I in full disclosure, I am a huge Devin Booker fan. One of my best friends is a Suns fan, and we talk about Devin Booker all the time because I think he has the chance to be a superstar. And I know there is a lot of you know hate from advanced stats Twitter and all all of these other places early on in his in his career, but he has turned himself into a really great offensive player already at 21 and he showed it against the Sixers and also the Sixers just looked disinterested and looking down upon the competition I guess as opposed to you know just coming out with the mindset of crushing a lottery team like the Phoenix Suns and then if you don't take them seriously then their scores like Booker and TJ Warren were are just going to kill you. I mean, Ben Simmons looked bad defensively. Joel Embiid even even looked bad defensively, although he pretty much adopted Alex Lynn as his son on a few defensive possessions. But it, these are the type of games that could bite the Sixers in the long run. And Brett Brown said as much uh, in the press conference afterwards. So let's quickly talk about the big man rotation for the Sixers. Their front court has been pretty constant this year, mostly because most of those guys have remained healthy. But Dario Saric has been a regular in the starting lineup, which I don't think I was expecting before the year. Do you think that the Embiid-Saric front court pairing is the best look for the Sixers in terms of front court starters? Or do you think maybe Saric would be better served as a bench player? No, I think at this point he needs to stay as the starter. Yeah, the original plan was, you know, Markel Fultz was going to be in the starting lineup next to Simmons and then have Covington, Redick, and Embiid and Saric coming off the bench. And, you know, Saric was actually struggling to start the year. Brett Brown decided to insert him uh, into the starting lineup in the sixth game. And he still struggled a little bit. But recently, if you look at his stat splits from October, November to December, January, and just for time's sake, I'll give you the December, January stats. Uh, In his 22 games from December 1st to now, he has averaged 17 points a game, seven and a half rebounds per game, three and a half assists per game on 40% shooting from three. And that was always the key for a Simmons 
for a, a Saric, Simmons, and Embiid lineup to work is that Dario Saric had to improve his uh, three-point percentage. Last year, he shot 33% from three when league average is like 35-36%, and he really struggled to start the year shooting the three. Uh, he had a, he had a few ups and downs, but these last uh, 22 games, he has shot 40% from three on five attempts and has really just unlocked the spacing for it to work. The Sixers have a few solid power forwards that really aren't getting much playing time in Amir Johnson, who's granted been playing pretty much exclusively center this year because he's not really quick enough to play power forward. But with Rashawn Holmes and Trevor Booker, Trevor Booker was really solid in Brooklyn, and he's been not as good, but still decent so far in Philly. And Rashawn Holmes is someone that I thought could have a breakout year this year, but instead he's been clearly behind Saric in the rotation. Yeah, uh, a little surprising. And I guess if there is one complaint that I have about Brett Brown, I'm not calling for his head like a lot of Sixer fans do every single time they lose. It's kind of getting tiring at this point. But the one complaint that I do have with Brett Brown is I know he's in the vein of trying to win now. And so, of course, a coach is going to naturally go with the veteran who knows what he's doing out there. And Rashawn Holmes does get lost on defense a lot. Don't be fooled by the emphatic blocks that he has. Um, Rashawn Holmes has always been a uh, pretty much a bad defender whenever he's out there. I would like to see him give Rashawn reps though, but yeah, he's been behind Amir Johnson and Trevor Booker. And I'm starting to have second thoughts about getting Trevor Booker in a trade. We have like four bigs who can't shoot. And whenever Trevor Booker is in any of the lineups, they've always been a net negative. I love Trevor Booker's hustle. He has provided more hustle in in like 15 games with the Sixers than Jaleel Okafor provided in two and a half years. So that's always a good plus, I guess. But if you're just talking about the lineups and how they fit together, Trevor Booker has generally been a negative. Um, So I don't know how I feel about that. But yeah, Rashawn Holmes should be getting some more time. But I understand where Brett's coming from. I just wish he would play him a bit more to get him those reps. Let's move on to talking about wings and guards really quickly. And there have been obviously the biggest story there has been faults. But there have been a couple of other interesting storylines to follow with those rotations. And one or really two negative ones, but one that's been, I think, shockingly positive. Timothy Luau Cabarro has been having a rough sophomore season, and Jared Bayless has just been having a rough season period. But TJ McConnell the goat. has been shockingly good, I think. He's been incredibly efficient on the offensive end. He's incredibly efficient at running the pick and roll, and He doesn't try and do more than he can on either end of the floor. And that's kind of what this team needs in a backup point guard. And it makes sense to me that McConnell has now passed Jared Bayless in terms of minutes per game because McConnell's just been better in basically every way than Bayless other than in terms of how many shots he jacks up per 36 minutes. Yeah, and it's really amazing how McConnell went from an undrafted rookie for a 10-win team and has now turned himself into one of the best, if arguably the best backup point guard in the league, I would say. 
And his three-point shot, I mean, he doesn't take a lot per game, but it's better. It looks quicker for him, and he is shooting 43% from three. But recently in the last few games, Brett Brown has told him to score. He has like his sweet spots and he from the mid-range, and he knows how to... He knows how to control the game, I guess, when the second unit is in there. And also, he's a very just pesky defender. And whenever he doesn't play and it's just Simmons as the primary ball handler, you really see the lack of wing depth on this and guard depth on the 76ers. Jared Bayless has just been to start the year. He was shooting hot from three. He was shooting like 40 percent. Then he had the wrist injury and he's just been a just a terrible player outside of his shooting anyway when he even when he had the hot start he was still really terrible he throws some of the most frustrating turnovers i've ever seen he's a sieve on defense and he basically only plays one position so he doesn't guard multiple positions and even the position he does guard he can't guard it at all so tj mcconnell is definitely the unquestioned sixth man now i think brett brown has figured that out um, to start the year, he wouldn't be in closing lineups, and that was another little criticism that I had of Brett Brown, and he's starting to figure out that TJ McConnell is a valuable player, and he and his teammates love him, and he the offense at least stays afloat and doesn't completely tank when he's out there. All right, let's move on to talking about your most recent article for Hashtag Basketball, which was about Joel Embiid's selection as an all-star starter. Embiid makes his first all-star game as a starter and then made one of the funnier but also more questionable speeches on public television where he declared that he was no longer interested in Rihanna. I'm pretty (laughs) sure he's lying, but that's an entirely different question. Embiid has been spectacular and he's been healthier this year by a long shot than any other year in his career. He's played basically three quarters of the Sixers games and they are such a different team with him on the court. Yeah, and I was going to I was going to complain about the Al Horford and Bead stuff. I'm over it. I like Al and I like Al Horford as a player, and he definitely should have made it. But just it's it's incredible how he started playing basketball and Joel Embiid started playing basketball in 2011. Basically, was an afterthought when he was recruited to Kansas, and worked he improved so much that he became the i had him as the best player on the draft board and a lot of people did when they went to that famous workout um not the cavaliers workout where he broke his foot but the there was a workout a week before that where woge and bill simmons was there and everybody just came away like that dude is the number one pick and then he misses two and a half years and i did not expect him to be this good this fast it's just it's incredible. His, If you're not a fan of the Sixers, you got to be at least a fan of the story. And it's crazy how good he is already this fast. Like you said, um, the Sixers are pretty much a lottery team when he doesn't play, when he doesn't play. And I have the on and off numbers right here. They're, they're my favorite stats to recite. When Joel Embiid is on the court, the Sixers have a 102 defensive rating. That would put him at second in the league. And by the way, the Sixers have worked their way up to third overall in defensive rating, which is just insane. I did not expect that. But when they, he's off the court, the Sixers are at 105, which would put him around 20th. Just the impact that he has already in just so with so little basketball experience is just 
insane. And he is now the first all-star starter since Allen Iverson in 2006. I'm not going to count 2010 as big of an Allen Iverson fan that I am. He should not have been voted as a starter. That was like two shells of Allen Iverson. But he, Embiid, was, is the first Sixers starter since Allen Iverson in 2006. And he is, him and Robert Covington are the embodiments of the process. Joel Embiid, arguably more, just because of the injuries he's missed. He's, I just hope he stays healthy. It looks like he's staying more healthy than usual. He, last year, last year, Brian Windhorst uh, on the Zach Lowe podcast equated Joel watching Joel Embiid play basketball to a baby giraffe playing because he doesn't he didn't have control of his body and he was just his limbs were all over the place and he wasn't landing right and he just had some scary falls that made my heart stop and he's had less of those falls this year and it seems like he is really focused on taking care of his body because he knows without Joel Embiid the Sixers can't compete for a championship down the road he's just that good and that's my soliloquy on Joel Embiid. This season from Joel Embiid is exactly why tanking makes so much sense and why Sam Hinkie was 100% correct when he put this team down the process path. And here's why. Preach. There are maybe, maybe 10 human beings in the entire world who can affect an NBA team to the degree that Joel Embiid does. And those players are necessary if you're going to win a championship. And side note, people will bring up the 2004 Detroit Pistons. If you look at Ben Wallace's defensive impact, he was a top 10 player in the league then. And I will argue that until the end of time. But the thing about Joel Embiid is not only do you need at least one player like that to win a championship, but as you stated with those on-off numbers, Look at how much of a difference it makes when you have that kind of player. It's not just that it turns a good team to a championship team when you have that kind of player. It turns an awful team into a mediocre team. Look at LeBron James in his first stint with the Cavs. Look at Kobe Bryant during the post-Shaq, pre-Pau Gasol era Lakers. Their teams would have been 15, 20-win teams max without those guys. With those guys, they're winning 45 plus games, making it into the playoffs. And you can take a mediocre team, you put one of those top 10 players on that team, and all of a sudden, they're a good to great team. Look at the Minnesota Timberwolves, who won 31 games last year and have already tied that this season by adding Jimmy Butler. And look at the Milwaukee Bucks. With Giannis on the court, they're about plus three With Giannis off the court, the team's outscored by 11.6 points per 100 possessions. There is nothing in the league that is worth anything close to a top 10 player, and teams should do literally everything within their power to get one of those guys. And even if there's sort of the acrimony from the league surrounding making a team bad on purpose, like the Sixers objectively were during the nadir of the process era, Look at what they have now. They have Joel Embiid, who by himself makes the process worth it. But they also happen to have Ben Simmons, who I don't think he'll ever be a top five, top ten kind of player in the league like Embiid. But he certainly seems like he's going to be a perennial all-star. And ultimately, there are so many teams in the league right now that would give up everything they had to try and get 
someone like Joel Embiid. And instead, you know, people poo-pooed Sam Hinkie's strategy and kind of ran him out of town and replaced him with the Colangelos. But, you know, if he wasn't vindicated before, after this year from Joel Embiid, he is pretty much vindicated for life in my mind. Look at Okay, so look at this net rating uh, on off a uh, court or stat from Joel Embiid. When the Sixers are or when Embiid is on the court, the Sixers have an 8.6 net rate or he affects their net net rating is at 8.6. And when he's off the court, the Sixers are a minus 4.6. That's a 13.2 difference. Th- this is the, the him by himself, like you said, makes the process worth it. And not just, you know, the process was considered, you know, oh, collect assets and, you know, get high draft pick after high draft pick. And part of that is true, but also taking shots on undrafted guys. The Sixers literally, Brett Brown himself said he went through 15 point guards. They went through a lot of 10 day contracts on drafted guys, and all they had to do was hit on a few. And with Robert Covington, turning into one of the best 3 and D players in the NBA and TJ McConnell, who was also undrafted and signed to a, and was signed to the team for peanuts, um, turned himself into one of the best backups in the NBA. And now the, so now those pieces are part of the process because they took shots on undrafted guys who could turn themselves into good players. Sam Hinkie vindic- vindicated himself a long time ago. I don't, I don't think they needed, I, if people don't recognize that now, then they've just missed the whole point of the process. And I just, I not only is Joel Embiid just a great, a great talent and hasn't even scratched the ceiling of what he could be. He is a great kid and a great personality. And if he, if he, if he could just stay, stay healthy, it won't just benefit Sixer fans, but it could just bring a lot of fun to the league for fans worldwide. I've just loved everything that I've seen from Embiid this year. And one more thing before we move on, Bill Simmons take that, well, just about every one of his Sixer takes infuriate me, but the one that did was saying that Joel Embiid gets lost on defense and he's not a good defender. That is possibly one of the worst basketball takes, if not the worst in 2017. He is he he might get lost on some possessions because of his inexperience playing basketball for seven years, but he he is the crown jewel of the defense. He commands guys where to go. He's just he's their best defender. I don't know what he's watching. It's Embiid's incredible. I think the worst take this year might be retroactively the guy who spoiled LeBron's unanimous MVP season by voting for Carmelo Anthony, but. Just retroactively oh, yes, forever. Yes. I meant of 20. No, no, I just meant, I just meant that take is retroactively the worst take forever because, <laughs> especially with how Carmelo's yes. played this year. But <laughs> yeah, Joel Embiid has been the alpha and the omega of the Sixers defense basically since he first stepped on the court last year. But especially this year, he's been really everything to keeping them in the top five on the defensive end. Let's move on to talking about the future outlook for this team. And I wanted to start by talking about the future outlook for this season. The Sixers are currently the seventh seed. They're percentage points ahead of the Milwaukee Bucks in eighth place. What do you think the Sixers' chances are of making the playoffs? And if I had to handicap it, obviously all of this is barring injury to any of the Eastern Conference playoff teams. 
I think the Sixers probably have a 75, 80% chance of making the playoffs because I think they have better chances of getting better as the season goes on than either Indiana or Detroit. That being said, I think Milwaukee is almost guaranteed to get better because they could have replaced Jason Kidd with a lawn statue and they would have gotten better. (laughs) I'd probably put... Oh man. Um I probably put it at an 85% chance um just because the Reggie Jackson injury for Detroit really hurt the Pistons. I don't think they have the depth on the bench to recover from that. And not only that Reggie Jackson was actually healthy this year and was playing really well and Basically, also the Knicks have fallen off. So I actually see the standings as I see it now. Boston 1, Raptors 2, Cavs, Heat, Wizards, Pacers, Sixers, Bucks. That's probably the eight that I'm going with moving forward because I just don't see the Knicks getting any better. The Knicks have kind of regressed to the mean after their decent start to the year. And also, I just think the Pistons can't recover from Reggie Jackson's uh Injury, ankle injury. Uh, I mean, it looks like he's still a month, a month and a half away from from when he injured it back in uh, November, I believe. And also, Avery Bradley has kind of f- secretly fell off a little bit, and Piston fans are not too happy about that. So I actually see this eight staying the way it is, and the Sixers have a really good chance of making it if also they can get better, like you said, and also just stop turning the ball over, if not for my health. <laughs> and... On a similar note, what do you think the Sixers' record is going to be at the end of the season? My guess is that they're somewhere between 45 and 37 and 48 and 34. I don't think they make it to 50 wins, but I also think that they make it into the playoffs comfortably above 500. I'd probably peg it at 42. Um before the season, I told, I texted one of my friends and my, I, and I said verbatim in my most non Sixer fanboy objective, uh, possible, objectively, uh, predictable outcome. I'd probably say the Sixers win 38 games. And that was one because I didn't know how healthy Joel Embiid would be or how many games he would play, which is, you know, a fair handicap to put on myself. But, um, I do, I just think that. You know, there are better teams and I think the Raptors and Celtics and the Heat are I in the Heat, um, the Wizards I think will turn it around eventually when they start carrying. I just don't see the Sixers getting above five hundred. They play like a five hundred team and also their wing depth, their wing and guard depth, like we talked about earlier, there is not that many good the Sixers probably have like one and a half, uh, Jared Bayless being the half <laughs> functional wings off the or guards off the bench. And I just think that's going to be a big factor in the Sixers losing some games that they probably shouldn't. So I think they're they're right on track where they are now, which is probably hovering around 500. Next up, how far do you think this team can go in the playoffs? I think that if they manage to find their way into the fifth or sixth seed, which I think is pretty unlikely, that they have a solid shot at winning a first round playoff series. I think it's also in a four five in a four five or a three six, depending on who the three is. But ultimately, I think this year the Sixers will make the playoffs. Be really happy that they made the playoffs. Play a tightly contested six game series where none of the top teams in the East really want to face them, and then bow out and try and build on that next year. 
Yeah, you're probably I probably would have them as a first round out if they stay in the six to eight range, because I just think Boston, Toronto and the Cavs or I know the Cavs are struggling right now, but again, they have the second greatest player of all time. So you got to keep that into consideration. But I could totally see them. I mean, four through five, I mean, they're only separated by two and a half games or four through eight, excuse me, are separated by two and a half games. So if the Sixers, you know, go on a little run, maybe an unexpected run that some that a lot of us didn't see in them and they find their way into a four or five matchup. Um, They have two players who could be the best player in a playoff series. And as we've seen throughout NBA history, that's all you need. And, you know, probably Joel Embiid more than Ben Simmons, but Ben Simmons could be the best player on the court one game and Joel Embiid could just envelop an entire first round four or five matchup. I could definitely see that, but most likely I'd probably say they stay in the sixth through eighth range and probably lose in six. If I'm any of the top three teams in the Eastern Conference right now, I really, really don't want to play the Sixers because... No (laughs) back-to-backs. Well, A, no back-to-backs, but B, Al Horford can do a better job on Joel Embiid than almost all of the league centers, but if you're talking about Toronto and Cleveland, who's going to face Joel Embiid for either of those teams? I mean, Jonas Valanciunas versus Joel Embiid is just going to be kind of sad. A laugher. (laughs) And Tristan, the ghost of Tristan Thompson versus Joel Embiid is going to be even worse. Yeah, that yeah yeah that's definitely true. But also, Toronto and Cleveland have better players than the Sixers outside of uh, Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. And also, yeah, uh, Boston has actually played Embiid the best. Like Embiid, that's the one team Embiid has struggled against um, aside from this uh, last game. So if the Sixers face Boston, I don't know if that would be a six-game series per se. But I could definitely see where Toronto and Cleveland would be you know, sweating bullets at the fact that one of Kevin Love, Tristan Thompson, or Jonas Valanciunas, or Yaka Pertle, or Pascal Siakam is guarding Joel Embiid because those have, they have, they have had no answers for them whenever he's played them in the regular season. So you could be right. They, yeah, Toronto and Cleveland could, would definitely be sweating in a series. I'm just trying to manage expectations because I'm a Sixers fan. <laughs> Fair enough. Let's talk quickly about what this team might look like in three years because ultimately with the Sixers it's a lot more exciting to talk about the future than this season even though they're probably going to make the playoffs this year and I think in the 2020 season Ben Simmons will join Joel Embiid on the all-star roster and it's going to be I think a battle between Boston and Philadelphia for the top team in the Eastern Conference, because by that point, I'm pretty confident that LeBron James will no longer be a member of the Cleveland Cavaliers. And with LeBron off the board, the three teams that are going to be competing for supremacy are the Celtics, the Sixers, and if they can get a decent coach, the Milwaukee Bucks. Yeah, so I've been thinking about this a lot. And, you know, a couple months ago, I tweeted that I was just fully out on Brian Colangelo and you replied back saying you weren't out on him before. And it's not that I was in on Colangelo when he first took over. Um, It's just that great GMs make chess moves, not checkers moves. You don't become a great GM 
by making the safe decisions or deciding to punt the second round of the draft. And I don't know if Brian, basically without getting too long winded here, I don't know if Brian Colangelo has what it takes to properly build around this roster. Yes, he can get around, he could get, he can get away with what he's doing now because Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons star players will cover up a lot of flaws that a general manager does, but just some of the moves that Brian Colangelo has done in the last, since he's gotten here have just been really puzzling and, you know, signing JJ Redick and Amir Johnson to one year contracts. Yeah. Those are smart moves in the sense that they don't tank your cap space, but they're not like groundbreaking, you know, Oh wow. That Sam Presti level or Masai Ujiri level moves. And that's my one thing where I hesitate um, projecting the Sixers as a championship team, because I just want to see how Brian Colangelo builds out this roster because you have two pieces and I would just get really freaky with this roster and just fill it out with six, seven wings or six, six, seven to six, nine wings and bigs that could switch every position. And I just, with Brian Colangelo punting the second round this summer and the whole Markel Fultz thing, you traded an extra top five draft pick. And I would do that move, by the way. That was a good move. But I mean, was it really a groundbreaking move? I don't know. I don't know what you think about. I don't. I've we've talked about Colangelo, and you've cautioned me also. But I was never in on Colangelo. I'm just worried about how he fits, how we can build this team out to realize its championship potential. So that's why I'm. I could. They can compete because of Embiid and Simmons, but how lo- will it be sustainable? I guess is my question. The thing that upsets me the most about Colangelo's tenure as GM, and there are a lot of things that upset me about Colangelo's tenure as GM, namely that Adam Silver basically brought his dad in to find a replacement for Sam Hinkie, who I don't think ever should have left the team in the first place. But the thing that upsets me the most about the Colangelo era in Philadelphia is that the number two, I should say, complaint about Sam Hinkie, the number one complaint being that he designed the roster to lose games because, you know, again, that was the thing that they should have done. The number two complaint about Sam Hinkie was that he didn't do a good job of managing player personalities, managing players as people, talking to agents. Agent relationships. Exactly. And managing medical issues and all of that. And Colangelo has been... 10 times worse at all of that than Sam Hinkie ever was. I mean, look at what happened to Jaleel Okafor, even though he's not exactly a... Nerlens Noel, Jaleel Okafor, Markel Fultz's agent had snuck through the back door to Woj to talk about the shoulder situation because Brian Colangelo was silent. And that was his other, that was Hinky's other criticism. He hid from the media. Well, Mr. Man of Action himself, Brian Colangelo, has been arguably worse at that. I don't think arguably. I think he's been objectively far, far worse. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, I'm just really scared is all I'm saying. (laughs) Well, let's try and end the podcast on a happy note then. And of course, it wouldn't be a podcast with the two of us if we didn't talk about Giannis Antetokounmpo. So closing out the podcast, who do you think wins an MVP first between Giannis and Embiid? And who do you think ends up with more MVPs between Giannis and Embiid? And for me, I think that the answer in both cases is Giannis, and that's not meant to be a dig against Joel Embiid. I think that five years from now, again, assuming health, which you kind of always have to, I think that 
Joel Embiid is probably going to be the second or third best player in the league, and Giannis is going to be the best player in the league. And the thing about Giannis is the same thing that we always say, which is if he can ever get a jump shot, the league is screwed. And he's averaging (laughs) almost 30 points a game this year without one, and no one can stop him anyway. And he's having this incredible season, despite, again, a coach that you'd probably be better off if you had a lawn gnome sitting on the end of the bench. And I don't think it's a slight against Embiid at all to say that I think Giannis is going to win an MVP first and to say that Giannis is going to win more MVPs because the ceiling with Giannis is almost impossible, whereas for Embiid, it's pretty impossible as well. But we've already seen so much from Giannis, and there's such an obvious thing that he can add to his game that would just make him exponentially So I was going to say Giannis in both categories, and I'd say pretty easily. Because, like you said, he is already averaging, what, 28 and 10 and almost uh, over four assists a game in his age 22 season. And this is with his coach, with Jason Kidd, holding him back. I give Jason Kidd credit for, you know, putting the ball in his hands, I guess. Well, now that I think about it, putting the ball in your star player's hands is not exactly the most revolutionary, you know, decision to make. But regardless, I guess Giannis did develop into becoming a point forward, so to speak. But he is already one of the best defenders in the league, which still somehow flies way under the radar. He can legitimately guard one through five. He has played in a terrible system. Okay, this I'm looking at the stats right now. This is one of the most this is one of the worst coaching travesties that I have ever seen. The Bucks are ranked 23rd in pace at 97.8 with the athletes that they have and the wing long wingspan slenderman players that they have. That is a travesty and Giannis is still somehow one of the five best players in the league. This is this should be his MVP year. The Bucks should have made a leap this year. Me and you were talking about it. Like you said, it's not a podcast without without us talking about Giannis. We had him as our I had him as the MVP favorite. I forgot what you said um, in the podcast that we did before the season, but this was supposed to be Giannis's MVP year. And because the team is terrible, because the coaches in part was terrible, well, in large part because he was terrible, uh, there's an MVP season wasted right there. So as much as I love Joel Embiid and I could see him winning an MVP, Giannis is just primed to win a lot of MVPs. Just get at least a competent coach who knows that this team should be way better than defensively and pace-wise than what it is. And Giannis will just break out. I said this in the hashtag basketball Slack channel, hashtag leverage the chat. Uh, right after the coaching change, they should have David Fisdale on a flight to Milwaukee today. Agreed. Uh, David Fisdale or David Blatt, fly them both in. I, uh, something. <laughs> or Jeff Van Gundy. I mean, if anyone's going to get Jeff Van Gundy back into coaching, it's going to be, hey, here you get a guy who could maybe be the best player of all time who's been woefully miscoached his entire career. Have fun, Jeff. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, Jason Kidd has the Jason Kidd firing has might, you know, backfire on the Sixers down the long run, like you said earlier in the podcast. And not just with this year's record, but with Embiid's MVP chances, which is no slight, by the way. Embiid's still going to be, I see him as a top five player, maybe best player in the league, but Giannis is there. All right. Anything else before we wrap up? Uh no, that'll that's 
that's uh, about good right there. Got all my Sixers stuff out there in the open for you guys to listen to. Not as much complaining, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to complain about the Sixers when you're on a podcast with someone who has to watch the Sacramento Kings. Yeah, that, yeah, that was. I also kept you in mind. It's like, okay, there's better stuff out. There. <laughs> there's better days. Yeah, and there's certainly worse days. <laughs> All right. Well, he is Jordan Christmas. You can find him on Twitter at s p o r t s t a l k x m a s. You can find his written work on the hashtag Basketball website. And if you want more Sixers content from him, you can also follow the new hashtag Sixers podcast. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N, and you can find my written work on the hashtag basketball website as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. It would be much appreciated. And if you have any feedback in terms of where we should go with future episodes or thoughts on what we've been doing so far, please feel free to reach out to me either via email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com or via Twitter. And as always, thanks so much for listening.